Welcome to the All That's Holy Blue Collar Podcast. Thought-provoking interviews with interesting guests and commentary on everything. Food, sports, God, gardening, church, politics, music, movies, comedy, you name it, we talk about it. I'm Cody Stopper. And this is Craig Morton. On this podcast, we talk to writers, teachers, activists, and we seek some wisdom. And as always, we are allergic to big words. But not to big ideas. Profound things will be said, but entirely by accident. Okay, now we're recording. We can talk about the listeners. How sure are we that they're lovable? How personally do you know these listeners? Um, well, you know, I'll tell you, I don't know anymore. <laughs> um, Are you just generically like, yeah, they're human beings, so they, I well, love them. They're lovable. There, there's that. I mean, God loves them, so that's good enough, right? Yeah, sure. But here's the other part. So we we did a little extra push on uh, getting this conversation out on the internet. Right. So who knows and what new do wells we, have joined us today? Well, we got we got uh, like over three you know, it went three thousand views or engagements or something like that. You know, really boosted fast last last Friday when we tried pushing this out. Yeah. But one person, you know, in our feedback when I'm checking the web checking the Facebook page, it said one person clicked hide. They don't want to see this announcement anymore. Oh. It's like, okay, wow. now that's, that's, that's harsh. Okay, no, no, Craig, reframe that. That is a necessary step in our ascendance. We have, we've upset somebody. That is a hallmark okay. of success. So, so if that's a hallmark of success, should we be upset that we've only offended one person? Let's offend some more people. What can All I say? Right. LeBron James is the GOAT. I said it. But yeah, how's that offend anybody? <laughs> I mean, there aren't, there, there's not still like some old, you know, Michael Jordan or KD fans out there, are there? Oh, yes. Are you kidding? Oh, oh. So did, did you hear the statistic? Tom there Brady was... is the greatest football player of all time. There, I said All it. right. So I'm, I'm going to go back to other statistics. So, um, <laughs> okay. so when um, Kyrie Irving got traded, right? Yes. And uh, no, no, not Kyrie Irving. It was uh, uh, Harden. Harden got traded also recently. Yes. Mm-hmm. And Harden is now playing with, is it? Is he playing with Katie? Is that right? Mm, that's right. Okay. Uh, so, so in their first two games together, they combined total score of 138 points. Wait, 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 wait. So, the, the, so in the first two games they played together. Yes. Their total combined points from two games was 138 points. Oh, oh, okay. Two games. Yeah, right. You know, okay. so so you know they're scoring what sixty-five points plus in <sighs> each game yeah. together, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. So, yeah. so on ESPN, they were talking about that statistic, and they said, "Well, let let let's go back." You know, so there were a, there was another duo who uh, has the record for the most points scored in two games by two people okay and here's drew and so 
uh, Wilt Chamberlain in 1961. Oh. Yeah, didn't he have a hundred point game? Well, well this that wasn't this wasn't even his hundred point game. Oh, but in, okay, okay. In two games, there was a there was kind of a I feel sorry for the guy I forgot his name, but he's no kind of a no name rookie, <laughs> and <laughs> and he and um, Wilt Chamberlain. Hey, Drew. Hey, Drew. We're talking about uh, basketball stats right now. <laughs> <laughs> But Will Chamberlain and this other guy together, they scored 151 points in two games. Okay. okay. And Walt, Will Chamberlain scored 139 of those points. <laughs> so Will Chamberlain scored more than KD and, and uh, James Harden combined. One point more. And yeah. Then, so. Oh, my word. Well, that, yeah, that guy, I tell you. So, so Drew, we, we almost got in an argument about whether or not. Uh, well, he was trying to egg me on, saying that uh, uh, LeBron James is the goat, and that's fine. I'm okay with that. So, well, I said it because uh, Craig was sharing that we've achieved. Well, he was framing it very negatively. He was upset that somebody hid our advertisement for, for today's session. And I said, no, no, you need to look at it as a hallmark of success that we've upset somebody. You know, we're, that's, that's, it's a hallmark. <laughs> and I said, let's offend some more people. And so I said, I LeBron James is, is the guy. Nice. Nice, that nice. didn't offend me. So, so Drew, Can, uh, great to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you as well. Can you guys hear me okay? I have a, a different setup. I, I can hear you great. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I had a laptop issue in my, um, so my employer gave me a loaner for a little bit. It's very, very slow, but um, but it works. <laughs> oh, okay. So hopefully all of our tech issues won't be an issue and everybody will just, will just be fine for a while. So, so I tried to warn you in the email, we're pretty casual. We, we aim for conversations more than interrogations. Right. So. <laughs> it sounds good. So, it sounds good. So, so, um, to everybody who's listening, hi, I'm I'm Craig. That's Cody, and we're talking okay. with uh, Drew Hart today. And Drew, um, you are a professor. You're a writer. Um, you know, you you've been involved in in ministry. Um, you um, have been speaking quite a bit lately. You've been making the rounds. I've noticed you on a number of podcasts and and Facebook live conversations. Uh, largely out of your latest book, uh, Who Will Be a Witness. And I love the subtitle, just so make sure you get that in. Um, so, oh, there we go, in stereo, stereo vision. <laughs> Who Will Be a Witness, Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love, and Deliverance. So that's a great subtitle. And uh, so out of that, kind of thought, oh, it'd be great to get together and just uh, you know, hear from you, uh, see what, what you've got to say. Uh, we do know that toward the end of this conversation, Cody has um, five questions that he will ask you, and just it's, you know, just just be ready for it. Um, you know, they'll they're, they're that's the most interrogation that we that, get into. It's, that's it's more uh, of the hot seat there. Uh, right. The hot seat questions. So I'll brace myself. Yep. Yeah, you brace right. yourself. So I, I'm happy to see you wearing just a pullover sweater or something like that. I almost thought that today, just for fun, we should all be wearing cardigans. Um, you seem to be a cardigan kind of guy, so. Sometimes. I, I'm a multiple things kind of guy, so it just depends well, on awesome. setting and contexts, yeah. All right. Yep. So, um, 
I, I kind of said a little something about your book, a little bit about who you are, but can you let us, you know, just how do you describe who you are, what you do, you know, what's your vocation, that kind of stuff? Yeah, I'm, I'm son of Tony and Carol Hart, um, uh, born and raised in Norristown, um, older siblings and a younger sibling. Um, most of my family's from Philly. Um, so that's where I kind of consider home, but um, live in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania now, um, which I've often considered my second home. This is the second time I've lived in this city. Um, and so it's kind of, I have roots, I have connections here that go back um, since right after college. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess in terms of formal work, I am a theologian and professor. I teach at um, assistant professor of theology in the biblical religious studies department at Messiah University. I also more recently am co-director uh, over the Thriving Together Congregations for Racial Justice program that was launched. I'm an author, as you mentioned, who will be a witness and also my first book, Trouble I've Seen. And I've written little things here and there, little stuff um, in other places. I'm a frequent speaker. Um, I do, um, I, it's interesting um, speaking where people are looking for online engagement. I'm like, I've never been busier. <laughs> um, and so I've been doing so much, um, just engaging a whole range of folks from obviously the podcast, probably what most people see most visibly, but also engaging pretty regularly with local congregations, with um, community groups, with seminaries, with in conferences, all kinds of stuff. Um, and so awesome. do that. Yeah, it's been um, good to engage a broader range. I mean, even some international groups as, um, that I would, that would have never happened, right? In terms of like engaging a group from the Philippines right. and from right. South Africa. And, you know, it was just, it's been a really neat. Um, and some of it, I should also mention, I'm also a co-host. Not everyone knows I'm a co-host for Inverse Podcast. And so uh, my co-host um, is Jared McKenna, who's actually from Australia. And so even our engagement around that, it's a, a organically international kind of audience. And we do um, Monday, well, no, no, not Monday, Tuesday, started off Monday, now Tuesday evening for me, um, book study groups. Um, and it's global. Like we have folks from That's Kenya cool. and the UK and Australia and all over the place. This is a lot of fun. Um, we'll make sure so, to get a link for that. Yeah, we need yeah, to make yeah, sure yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that's just uh, some of what I do. I'm also very locally rooted as well. I do a lot of stuff here in my community. I'm a uh, co-leader for a group called Free Together, which is organizing uh, uh, Christian leaders and churches, trying to get them more connected with the good work that's already happening in our city and trying to work for racial justice here locally. And so, um, yeah, so it makes us different things that I'm involved in. So One of the things that you... Oh, oh, go ahead, Cody. I'm sorry. So you might have already addressed this in that in introducing yourself to us, but uh, one thing I've noticed on several spots is that you use the um, qualifier of public theologian, and I wondered if you use that on on purpose and what that means to say public theologian, because most people just say theologian, but they don't tack on that public part. So what does that yeah, mean? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a term. In some ways, you could say it's always been a part of my life. But when I did my PhD program at Lutheran Theological Seminary, Philly, which is now United Lutheran Seminary, they um, their PhD program, actually, that was their emphasis was public theology. And so no matter what you were doing, um, you took a PhD seminar on public theology. And that was also going to be one of your 
um, dissertation exams, right? Uh, now, in some ways, it was this amorphous thing, like, what does it really mean? I don't know, even after going through all that. But, um, but I do think it is um, the intentionality of discoursing in the public square, right? Um, and trying to, so I, and I, I think I do it in multiple ways. Some of it is intentionally online, um, but it's also like, I think about being a public theologian in terms of the work that I do in the community as well, making um, some of the things that I believe are part of uh, the Christian tradition intelligible for a broader audience. So even like when I, like, you know, if I'm talking to Christians, I'll talk about Shalom, but when I'm out in the community, I say, like, how do we envision, you know, flourishing communities, right? Um, that's me trying to make intelligible, um, I think, things that are really important to us. But how can we have a shared vision around these things and have an intelligent conversation around that with our neighbors who don't necessarily share all the ideas and, and language that we have? Yeah. Good. Thank you. So um, one of the things that you mentioned in, in your first book, Trouble I've Seen, is the difference of being uh, African-American and going to a white school, a largely white college. In, in fact, being part of a largely white um, denominational tradition. But you mentioned you grew up in Norristown, which is an incredibly rich, diverse community. Yeah. Uh, did, were, were you, did, is that where you connected with Anabaptism was in Norristown? Or? No, I had never heard of Anabaptists until um, I became an adult. At So when okay. I went to Messiah is when the first time I was even introduced to the, I had no idea there was such a thing. When I heard the okay. first time I heard Anabaptists, I'm like, anti-Baptist? Like, what y'all got a problem with the Baptist for? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, it, it, well, it was similar for me. I grew up Presbyterian, you know, but and it's like anti-Baptist, what's that? And I, I didn't have a gripe with them really at the time, but, um, but that, that's an interesting experience of being, um, I would think you, you get to see things from a different perspective out of that Norristown experience than going to, uh, Messiah college was, it was Messiah college, right? Yeah. 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 Yep. So you went to Messiah now you're teaching there also, right? Yeah. So not ever expecting it, but ended up coming all the way full circle back to Messiah and teaching there. And so it's been, um, yeah, I mean, there's no question that the combination of my experiences have shaped who I am in very significant ways. Right. And so, um, Norristown, you know, largely black and Brown, but significant white population as well there in the city um, and navigating that school districts where people are intermixing in different kind of ways, kind of a small microcosm of what you see in these larger cities, but right. like it's, it's more obvious, right? Cause you're interacting, you're crossing those racial boundaries a little more often than you might in other spaces. And so you kind of learn things, I think up front. Um, and then, yeah, going to Messiah was interesting, which I, I mean, what I've realized going, I mean, I've spoken at like so many Christian colleges now. I'm like, I think I, I, there was a time in which I thought my experience was about like Messiah. And I was like, this was not about Messiah. This is about like American Christianity <laughs> and, and white American Christianity in particular. Um, and certainly there are differences and nuances, but there's some um, common trends that as I spoke across the nation, I began to realize like my story was other people's story. Um, so many students, especially young black students said that was my story. I resonated so much with what you were talking about. Um, and so, yeah, that gave me a different lens for thinking through, which it took time. Like I didn't understand what I was experiencing as um, on this Christian campus initially, but 
But over time, I, I began to see the patterns. I began to see what was going on. I began to ask some questions um, that honestly, you can't understand what I do today outside of that North Center experience clashing with, you know, the Christian college culture. Yeah. Yeah, you so, actually yeah, talk so, about in your book uh, two experiences on college campus that were both centered around walkouts yeah, that, uh, yeah, yeah. that really formed your way of thinking. Uh, and I was in what struck me was that it was twofold, right? It was your own experience kind of hearing whoever the, pre the presenter was at the time. I think it was uh, John, John Deere, Deere one time. Yeah. yeah. Yep, and then. John Deere. Um, an unnamed person. An unnamed person. Yeah, I didn't remember his name. I don't know if he was <laughs> as famous, I'm guessing, as, or I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. You but know. you were resonating with the, the message. But yeah. then at the same time, also the, the community's response to that message. So it was like a, yeah. a stark contrast there. It, pretty formative experience for you. Yeah, very, very formative. I mean, these little moments that you can kind of take for granted, but for like wheels were turning for me. Like, right. I'm watching my peers and think like, why are they responding like this? Like, I just don't get it. Like, I thought we were all followers of Jesus. Like sometimes, and number one, sometimes we disagree, which was something that happens like in chapel anyway. Messiah actually was pretty thoughtful. I mean, of introducing people to a wide range of folks. And so this is something that you just, it just happens, right? So why out of all the talks is this one, like the final straw upon which everyone must like, you know, stampede out of the, out of the sanctuary or whatever, out of the room. And so that was interesting, but then, yeah, thinking more deeply, like what formed them in such ways? Why was this so common? And why was this seeming so strange for me? Like these were not obvious, like these are things I had to work out, right? What is going on here? There's a story behind all this that I need to unpack further. And so as a student that these moments, um, and I have many others like it, that um, help me kind of process and ask good questions. That's good. So what, what is, what, how would you describe kind of your, just your own faith development? Uh, you know, what, what your, your view of, because we're, we're speaking generally, I mean, so much recently, I guess I should say, we're dealing with issues of, of um, racial justice. We're dealing with issues of, of, becoming more aware or hospitable or open and welcoming to the to different types of diversity. Um, you know, have you grown up and kind of felt that or were there some times in your life where you realized you yourself had to uh, kind of see God opening up some new relationships, some new conversations and and then how is that affecting the way that you are engaging with uh, groups today? Because I imagine you may go to certain places where people are not on board yet. Right. And you might be that speaker someplace that people want to walk out on. Sure. Um, and so how, how are you, um, you know, how, what, what's been your faith pilgrimage, I guess, on some of those pieces, those aspects? Yeah, so I grew up in a black church that, I mean, would never use the name, but I would call it black evangelicalism, right? And I do use a term to call it black evangelicalism to say it was a different kind of evangelicalism, but it was evangelicalism. Um, <laughs> and so like in our church growing up, I mean, it wasn't strange necessarily for people to talk about race and faith. Like that's not, no one's like, you know, or if someone had a sermon on justice and things like you know, that, that's not going to like, you know, um, going to disrupt the, the apple cart or anything like that. Um, 
And at the same time, it was also being fed off of the assumptions of American evangelicalism to some degree in terms of theologically, right? Some of its core values. I mean, it would still would have prioritized soul and spirit over flesh and material life, right? And the concerns of today. Um, even so there's a place for justice, so of course, but you know, so some of its instincts were there. Um, and so that deeply, I mean, one of the things that I've found from that is that's it helps me understand at least in some degree evangelicalism in its, at least in its theological cores, right? Um, right. I think evangelicalism today, so much of it is much more than just theological, right? There's cultural and political things at work also. But, um, but at least on the theological side of things, I at least understand where a lot of folks are coming from. That's been an enormous gift for me to, um, to kind of engage. And I think because my church had enough sensibility to be able to talk about social issues comfortably, as well as, you know, that it makes me, I, I think I'm, I don't want to say predisposed to move anywhere. That's not quite true, but, but I do think it had opened me up to be a little more comfortable in a vi wide variety of spaces already. Um, but I don't get me wrong when I was, I had a little bit of a narrow kind of view of things and thought that our church had solved all the answers and everyone just needed to, you know, think a little more like us, right? I mean, I think that's just human inclination until you expose yourselves to more. So when I did go off to, to college, um, I was a biblical studies major and I was being introduced to a whole wide range of stuff. I mean, our department, even back then, and I'd say today, I mean, very much, very, um, you know, a lot of integrity in terms of just biblical scholarship, forcing students to ask tough questions, to read the text carefully, um, biblical criticism, theology, all of that stuff is there. And so um, I was all of a sudden swing, swimming in the deep ends that I had not even known about, right? right. I, um, and so asking different kinds of questions, grappling with different kind of questions. I had at Messiah, I call Messiah University Anabaptist light in terms of its overall, like, it's not like if someone were to go to like, you know, Eastern Mennonite University or something like that, you know, you're Anabaptist heavy, you know, yeah. um, this school, like, at least, especially when I was there, like, most people may not even at that time even been thinking about it as an Anabaptist school, right. but it had just enough of the ethos there that it's going to shape some of your experiences. Was it, and stuff was like it that. Brethren in Christ background? Yeah, so it's it came okay. out of the Brethren in Christ. They're the ones who founded it. They're no longer like under the Brethren in Christ formally, but um, but Messiah will always name its traditions as being influenced by Anabaptism, Pietism, and Wesleyanism, which are the three streams that shape Anabaptism. Um, it's a largely, in terms of culturally, especially with student body, it's a largely evangelical um, culture. But in terms of the kind of behind the scenes kind of influences, um, Anabaptism certainly plays quite a role on campus and very much so in the biblical and religious studies department. Um, so I had, and still, I mean, right now it's interesting, our department, we have Mennonites, we have Brethren, we have Church of the Brethren, we have a Quaker, <laughs> um, and you have me who's like this mishmash of a whole bunch of things, but certainly, um, and others who have some orientations in those directions as well. And so, so, yeah, so I began asking all kinds of different kinds of questions that I had never asked before while I was on that campus. Um, wasn't sold out on the Anabaptism thing at that time, but, um, but certainly I, I appreciated some of the questions 
um, that I was being raised, that were being raised in the classroom that I had to grapple with for my own faith. Then after that, actually, there was a church, local church that reached out to me. It was a Brethren in Christ, Harrisburg Brethren in Christ Church, um, multiracial urban congregation, doing a lot of good work in the city. And they reached out. And so I ended up becoming the youth pastor almost immediately after I graduated. Um, and in that space, what was interesting was some of the questions I was grappling with, I was getting to see fleshed out some of the Anabaptist convictions in community, right? I'm like, what does this actually mean and look like in community? And that was kind of meaningful. Um, again, if anybody had asked me while I was a youth pastor, which is funny, I would have said, I'm not an Anabaptist. I'm not an Anabaptist, you know. Um, but I was appreciating some of the, the convictions and stuff as a part of the community and, um, and also processing, you know, I, I, in some ways it was during that time that I began to question the, the significance of the racial reconciliation movement and its failures. Cause that was like the mm. language that was used in that space okay. and something just seemed off and missing in that space. And I was trying to name and wrestle with some of those things while I was there. Um, but that was a part of my journey as well. Um, but it was, yeah, I think being in a space where um, I would, how I often define Anabaptism is taking Jesus seriously, right? And that's oversimplified, but taking Jesus seriously, because everybody would say they do. But in terms of way of life, right? How are we thinking about the teachings right. and life of Jesus as an ethic? And so grappling with that, I think, was really um, a meaningful thing. So I ended up, after four years, going back to Philly. And I was actually, so I started uh, Missio Seminary, um, urban concentration over there. And I was actually at my home church as an assistant, um, as an associate pastor. Um, and it was in my home church going back that all of a sudden I was like, you know, these damn Anabaptists changed me. Like they got to me a little <laughs> bit, you know. So I actually, for the very first time, started calling myself an Anabaptist when I was no longer a part of an Anabaptist community. Um, not that I knew at that time, like I wasn't like a pure Anabaptist, like in some of the kind of ways, but I, but it had formed me. It had shaped right. me in significant ways. Um, and I appreciate it. And I wanted to name it because I could feel and see the difference as I was back, right. As I was talking about things, I was like, I'm not quite the same anymore. And I'm not sure if everyone's picking up on it, but I'm, you know, and I'm trying to give language to it. So then I label myself at that point. Right. Um, and so shortly after that, I get connected with some um, folks that I, just briefly, it's kind of random connection, but anyway, I ended up connecting with a whole wide range, this Anabaptist network, urban Anabaptist network in Philly, and come to find out there's like this enormous, like, you know, urban Anabaptist community in Philly that I never knew about, right? Black Mennonites that go back multiple generations, like, you know, Latino Mennonites, the largest um, Anabaptist congregation was this like, um, immigrants and largely Indonesian um, community in South right. Philly. I mean, just, and so all these Anabaptists, wide range of backgrounds and stuff, they met monthly and collaborated across denomination. And just, it was just really a beautiful thing. Um, and so that became like second community to me. So I'm here in this black church, um, but I'm also in this Anabaptist space, multiracial, non, where white people don't dominate what it means to be Anabaptist, right? You have like Latino and black Anabaptists doing church planting where their congregation is primarily um, comprised of returning citizens, right? Or folks doing um, community development work or folks doing, you know, their church is um, a sanctuary church, right? Um, working for, you know, the rights of undocumented people. Just a wide range, that was who was around the table with me. And so it was just a really good experience. That um, 
that more than anything, along with then the multiracial Anabaptist congregation I was a part of when I was in Harrisburg, those two things um, fused in me like a passion. Like, how can I bring all these? This is kind of, this is beginning to form me, right? Both my own black church experience, as well as this. And then I also ended up, um, once I got to my dissertation phase, I stepped down from pastoring and ended up going to um, Second Baptist, which was this in Germantown, Philly. And it was a black Baptist congregation there as well. And so with, I, I felt like it had Anabaptist vibes to it, right? And it sounds weird to say, a black Baptist congregation with Anabaptist vibes. And so, um, I was always, I was hovering in those spaces. That that is just so much of me. If for someone that wants to understand who I am, um, you can't understand me outside of. I would say, I would articulate it best: the best of the radical discipleship wing of Anabaptism and the best of the prophetic witness of the Black Church. Right? Those two things are the streams that I'm intentionally drawing from all the time. Um, to shape who I am. And so, yeah, I move in a lot of different spaces. My schooling, again, Messiah with this Anabaptist light kind of space. Missio Seminary was evangelical-ish with this kind of missional holistic kind of theology and then going mainline into, you know, more um, mainline theology and discourse. Um, and so even just the institutions I engaged in yep also gave me space. I feel very comfortable. I remember all the time, one week I'm talking to an Episcopal church. The evangelicals don't engage me quite as much, but some of them do. The justice-oriented evangelicals engage me quite a bit, and so, and everything in between, right? Um, and so I enjoy that kind of ecumenical dialogue and engagement and interaction quite a bit. It seems like it gives you joy. I mean, I can see when you're talking about these different groups that you're, you are interacting with, um, it, it's, it's joyful. Um, and uh, sometimes some people can feel almost um, they have to spend so much time translating things into other ecclesial language to be acceptable or appreciated by some other group, or they have to worry so much about whether or not they're communicating. It sounds like you just have it flow naturally, or, or at least you've learned to be very comfortable with these different settings. Yeah, um, comfortable in these different settings and have, I think, uh, enough awareness to know how to respect other people's traditions while also being myself and in those spaces, right? right? So I'm not accidentally constantly stepping on everyone's toes. If I do it, it's more intentional, right? Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I think that that it's, yeah. And I, I, I value being in these different spaces and having that kind of capacity to engage different groups on their terms as much as I can without diminishing who I am as a person, yeah. Uh, a couple of months ago, someone was explaining to me um, her experience growing up in America, Black, that uh, talking about code switching. And I wonder, right, code switching. Is, yeah. was that maybe a foundation too for your ability to? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, you know, code switching is the, is the thing that you do innately as Black people, right? Um, when you're not thinking about it. It's not actually always healthy though, right? I think that there's a way in which I have to actually turn on and say, no, it's it's not time to code switch. There's a difference between um, being interculturally like aware and have learned and be thoughtful and, but, but code switching can also like diminish who you are as a person, right? And deny some of the best of who you are because you're expected to assimilate into a certain way of being. So the wrestle for me is how do I show up fully as myself, but also um, 
to do so interculturally, right? Um, in thoughtful, careful ways that respect other people's traditions and experiences as well. So there's that fine balance, I think. And so, yeah, I mean, I've code switched quite a bit just unconsciously. If I'm not thinking, I can easily just fall in um, and you just start, you know, fitting into a certain space um, out of survival, right? That's what we've had to kind of use that as a strategy for survival. Um, but it doesn't um, allow for the full affirmation of our own community, our own gifts, our own traditions. And so I think, and that's actually, not only does it diminish us, we're, we're refusing to offer our gifts to others as well when we do that. Yeah. That's good. You also talked about radical um, discipleship a, a few minutes ago. And so I wanted to, because you, you highlight this throughout the book, it's a big component, this idea of discipleship, forming people in community to ignite activism. Um, would you uh, maybe just, I don't want to give away too much of the book, could you compare and contrast modern discipleship with early discipleship? You did that in an early chapter. I want to hear just a, a little bit of that. Yeah, and I, to be honest, I'm like, what did I say? I don't even remember, but I can, I'll just riff <laughs> and we'll, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'll just riff a little bit. Um, no, but I mean, I think that, you know, when people think about discipleship, certainly, I know a lot of folks are first and foremost thinking about like, let's do a book study, right? Or let's do devotionals together, or, you know, or what's this class we're going to have? I don't know. And not to say that any of those specific things can't also be incorporated into discipleship, but that's not discipleship, right? Not to Jesus. Um, and so discipleship to Jesus has to be orienting us um, in the life, in the way of Jesus Christ, in the teachings of Jesus, um, in making visible the story of Jesus to our neighbors, right? That's discipleship. Um, and so that deeper formation, um, I think, is something that we don't always have a capacity to imagine. Um, I know, I, I talk to my students all the time, and, you know, usually they but we all love Jesus, you know, but their commitment is to the, you know, worshiping Jesus, being emotionally bound in the person of Jesus, right? That kind of piety that does that, but not necessarily to a different kind of way of life, right? Um, not as we're thinking about the lures of um, and the power of capitalism over our lives, the lures of white supremacy, or even today as people are talking about conspiracy theories and stuff, how do we move and navigate this world differently as because we're followers of Jesus, right? And what does that mean, not just as individuals, but as communities? Like what is God dreaming up for us as we relate to one another in community, as we share resources, as we pursue justice together, um, as we, you know, allow the reign of God to be manifest here on earth. And so I think that um, these are the kind of things that are essential, I would say. Like, that's what it means to be followers of Jesus. That's, that's literally what the word Christian means, right? Some people are always intrigued in some of my books. Like sometimes instead of using the word Christian, I'll say Jesus-shaped, right? Precisely because I'm like, well, we've lost the word Jesus. I mean, Christian now, right? right. So I got to, how do I get that idea that we're Jesus-shaped people, not in like the superficial sense, but in a meaningful way, like our lives, because, and it's through being with others, right? That's why I said, like, even when I talked about um, the Harrisburg uh, Brethren in Christ multiracial Anabaptist congregation, like they got me, right? It was actually me seeing and experiencing, in fact, benefiting from, right? Hospitality and things like that, that gave me new imaginations for what that can mean in my own life, right? Um, and so we've got to live that out for others and for ourselves. And I think that um, that it is, it's radical. So I call it the radical wing of the of the Anabaptist because I think there's, there's aspects of the Anabaptist movement today in the UN of baptism that are 
not radical discipleship in that kind of sense, but I'm thinking of like Ched Myers, right? When I think of radical discipleship, okay. that kind of yeah. wing of things, um, I think he embodies the best of, of what the radical discipleship wing of Anna Baptism is all about. Uh, you were, as you were uh, speaking, <laughs> excuse me, it, it reminded me, you go on a, on a riff kind of later on in the book, uh, Politics of Love. And uh, I have a large highlighted uh, section. Early Christian leaders affirm the interdependency of our love of God and our love of neighbor in scripture. Those who say I love God and hate their brothers or sisters are liars. And then you go on a long, uh, opening that up even wider. Uh, and, but I think that's part of what you're getting at with Jesus shaped lives. And then checking all these different places where we interact and where we, uh, live our lives individually or where we live our lives in a community are we following through on that so it's also yeah. having that accountability to check in i guess yeah 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 i mean it's got to get fleshed out in our actual lives given the actual realities and challenges that we face in our society today so what does it mean to have a jesus-shaped life in the midst of you know the, the terrors that undocumented people have been experiencing, right? Over the past few years, right? What does that actually mean for us to love and welcome the foreigner in our midst, right? Um, that's got to get fleshed out. And if it, it doesn't lead towards shalom for them, right? Then something is missing, I think, um, very practically. And so we are not committed, first and foremost, to the laws on the books. We're not committed to this nation state, first and foremost. We're committed to the shalom of all creation. Um, and we have to pursue that as followers of Jesus as our highest priority and calling. I mean, that's what Jesus meant when he said, seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be given unto you, right? Um, that it's God's shalom, God's dream for us, God's reign um, that we are after and that we're pursuing. And it's for the well-being of all people, especially those who are most vulnerable. Um, and so we've got to always make it practical and flesh it out in even controversial ways, in ways that will be called too political, right? Um, the kingdom of God is too political. And so we can't afford to not name those things, honestly. I, when you talk about practical fleshing out, um, I think about your illustration used at the beginning of the book of uh, Martin Luther King putting on the blue jeans yeah. and coming out. And I think you've used it in a sermon too. I think I, I use it all the time. Yeah, I love that <laughs> yeah. illustration. So, I love it. Well, what's the, what's the significance of that? What does that mean? Oh. And then um, what is that, like, where do you see that going on right now? What's a blue jeans uh moment going on right now do you see yeah so i mean so I'll, I'll have to give the background so the story i'll give the short version of it you can catch it i begin it the book begins with it though usually i end with it when i give my talks um that's how i've used it so i've used that for a long time way before the book but but basically you know you have this moment in birmingham where king is with some of his fellow you know, leaders, and they're arguing about what to do next. There's an injunction against this march that they're going to go on. And, and they're running out of funds and people are not turning out to get arrested like they wanted. And so they're debating about what to do. And King is just quiet the whole time. And, and suddenly King leaves them. They're in a hotel room where you have a little bedroom and he gets up and he leaves and closes the door and just leaves them to like discuss and debate among themselves. Um, and normally King is dressed with like the black suit, black tie, white shirt, you know, well, he comes out, he's changed his clothes and all of a sudden he's wearing a blue work shirt and blue jeans, right? And everybody knows exactly what that means uh, at that moment that uh, when he comes 
doubts. Um, it mean he, he came out to change those clothes to signify that, you know, we got to get to work. We got to pull up, our, roll up our sleeves and get to work. Um, and we're going to go get arrested. Everybody knew immediately. And so then there's a famous picture later with him and Ralph Abernathy and Fred Shuttlesworth, those three all wearing the blue work shirts and blue jeans. And so for me, that's an invitation, right? That not just for King in that moment, but for us, you know, where and when are the times where we need to put on our blue jeans? Now, I would say it's always the time to put on our blue jeans, right? Um, and it's time precisely because we live in an unjust world where things are not the way they ought to be. Things are, are not the way God intended and dreams up for us. People are not flourishing. We're not experiencing shalom here on earth, right? Um, and so it's time to put on our blue jeans for undocumented neighbors, right? Um, who, who are afraid of being deported. We're time to put on our blue jeans for for uh, folks that are, you know, locked up 2 million people in our prison system, right? Disproportionately black and brown, disproportionately poor, disproportionately have mental health uh, challenges, right? Um, disproportionately homeless, the most vulnerable literally of our society. Um, it's time to put on our blue jeans to challenge patriarchy, right? And the ways that it impacts women's lives, both in church, in church and society as a whole. Um, there's just so many ways, the xenophobia that goes on in our society and certainly um, to challenge the narratives of American exceptionalism and white supremacy that justify so much of the violence and oppression and systems that we take for granted as a part of our status quo. And so, yeah, it's time to put on our blue jeans to get to work, to do justice and to set things right and to join in with what God is doing. Yeah, I think one of the things that I, I, I don't know, I shouldn't say struggle, but it's one of the things that I question myself on, at least I want to be able to question myself on, is, yeah, I want to put on my blue jeans and I want to be uh, an advocate to, al uh, to align, to, to be with, to, you know, but my tendency, you know, maybe I'll speak a little more pejoratively. My tendency is, hey, I'm an old white guy. I know how to do it right. <laughs> right, right, right. But I, I mean, I want to, I want to participate. I want to use whatever positional kind of power I've got in in culture to to let others have that to lead to have that limelight or whatever. But I think there's this. Um, I, I need to keep myself in check. Yeah. Uh, just because when I put on, even though I always wear blue jeans or sweats. But when I put on the blue jeans figuratively, I'm entering into somebody else's space. And, and I think it's just a struggle for old white guys to, to do that without carrying our uh, desire to shape it, define it, lead it, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. How do you help churches figure that out or individuals figure that out or how they have those conversations? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of ways. I mean, I always tell folks, you know, your your task, especially as white folk, is to join in, number one, with the work that's already happening, right? What's the good work? And, and the, the great thing about discipleship is it's not a one-size-fits-all model. Jesus does not invite people all to the same thing. He's not telling everyone to sell all they have and give it to the poor and follow him, right? That's just for the rich ruler, right? And so there's customized ways in which we enter in. And so some people um, precisely, I mean, when we think about Jesus's teachings and how we enflesh the idea that the first are last and the last are first, this is essential in our work. Um, and so those who have been, who've been socialized to believe that they are first and that they have the answers, 
you get the privilege and the honor of being first listeners and first learners and first followers, right? This is a gift. This is a special gift that you've been given. Um, and those that have been, who've been socialized to believe that they don't have, or, or certainly even if they understand that they have something to offer, um, that there, there hasn't been space for them to be heard and taken seriously, um, they now in this space get to be the first leaders, right? And, um, and, and get to lead and, and guide the way and speak first as well. And some people need to be slow to listen, right? I, I mean, yeah, slow to listen, slow to speak and, and quick to listen. I'm saying yeah, backwards, go, yeah, yeah. right, the other way. And, um, and so like, I think that we have to, and this discipleship has to make this practical and enfleshed in actual practice. Um, and so both in like, we could say a little practice in terms of rehearsal, but also then socializing people and discipling people in such ways that they can practice this as they go out on their own as well. So one of the things I'll point back to what uh, we do in Inverse for our book studies. One thing that we do for our book study, is this global book study group. Um, we actually have a practice now where along with making the space um, listening centered, right? Rather than speaking centered. So we tell everybody ahead of time, you come with a passage that you've chosen, you underline it and what you wanna say about it. We break them into groups, they share what they're gonna share. Then next round, we actually put two groups together and you share what someone else said, yep. right? Yep. And you're passing that along. And then we get to the bigger group. Then we say, look, um, for those that are, you know, um, who have been disinherited, who've had their backs against the wall, you're invited to speak first. And we explicitly say every time, um, black women in particular, we're gonna invite you to be leading in the conversation and then others behind them. And we explicitly say, white men, we invite you to, to be first listeners. And what we found is that initially, in fact, cause they've confessed, some of the white men have said initially, they were like, oh, I'm not sure if I'm gonna like this. And now they love it. They've realized that there's so many other perspectives and that they've, and to be slow to speak has actually been a gift for them, right? Um, I mean, it's funny how many, uh, white men have praised us for the way that we structured and, and organized this community awesome. space. Um, and it's not that there, there's a space eventually, you know, we have space for everyone to share, um, but that their, their task in this space is to be first listeners. And I think that that kind of posture, again, how do we take that and disciple people in that same kind of way as it relates to doing justice work, right? Yeah. Um, that you maybe have been taught that you have everything to offer, right, and to give, um, and it's precisely for that very reason that you need to be the primary student, to be seen as learners. And that actually disrupts white supremacy's uh, socialization, right? By taking on that posture as learner and taking Philippians 2 kind of seriously, right? Um, yeah. In our own posture, in our own ways of living and learning, and that we can actually become new people in the process. That's beautiful. It, sound, it sounded like you took the methodology, if you're familiar with the process of dwelling in the word, and, um, and not sure. That, so, but it's it's something that we've used a lot in in Bible, yeah, uh, discernment. Where, but the key is not to say what it means; it's to listen. The phrase is used to listen someone else into free speech. Just create yeah. that opening for them, and then not say what you thought, but report what this other had to say. Yeah. But then moving that into larger social spaces. Right. Yeah, larger social practices. And it's a global group for us, which is fascinating because yeah. we have people from different contexts and stuff also getting to weave in these different perspectives. And it's really just beautiful. Yeah, that is. That is great. And your uh, the chapter is making me think about uh, the politics chapter of the, the 
politics or church politics, I think. Yeah, and you, you politics of the church. Say, yeah. yeah, politics of the church and uh, decentralization versus marginalization. Yeah. yeah. Uh, having that discussion to kind of, I don't know, maybe soften the blow, I guess, for that uh, <laughs> fragile white uh, ego, I suppose. But uh, how, what I walked away from that chapter thinking was like, you know, even in my context, like we can't even begin to talk about um, justice issues if we don't examine our own power structure just in our local church. Do you, mm -hmm. is that a, a fair assessment? Do you think what's the importance of assessing your own local power dynamics? Yeah, no, it's, it's vital. It's so important. I mean, everybody likes to think that the problem is out there, right? That's a, the problem's out there, those folks. Um, and we can't see how that is animating the life of our own gathering, our own interacting, our own, um, the way that we see and are seen in spaces, right? And so I think that um, it is extremely important um, to name that. And churches sometimes can be the most naive as it relates to power, right? Oh, there's no power dynamic. It's just, a, yeah. just you know, the pure gospel manifested here on in flesh, right? No, no, it ain't. <laughs> um, there's all kind of power works at work. And it's not just about who's pastor and things like that. There's invisible power at work, right? Some folks uh, with a squeaky wheel or paying ties or got the right last name or all these different things at work that are shaping um, decision-making in the life of the church and who has say and who doesn't get heard, um, all kinds of stuff. And so we've got to do a lot of work um, and deep. I mean, I only, in some ways, we, I just touched the surface. I mean, I do name a lot of stuff in that chapter, but I mean, there's deep work to be done in the life of congregations before, um, not to say that everything needs to be worked out before we engage, but it should be happening simultaneously and ongoing, right? That in the practice of justice and work of justice, we're always doing self-examination and reflection and that those two will feed into each other going back and forth. Um, and that we'll need sometimes other people's insights um, sometimes others can see us in ways that we can't see ourselves, right? And so, um, especially when you think about things like white supremacy and patriarchy, right? That these are ways in which sometimes it can seem so normal. So this just seems like, you know, it seems so good, feels so right. No, sometimes it, what feels right to one is terribly off and in fact um, harmful, right? Terrorizing to the soul of another. And so we've got to be able to recognize that we can also do great harm even with great good intentions. Is that some of the work that you're doing with this new project of working with congregations or can you say something, uh, what, describe that and tell us about that? Yeah, so Thriving Together, Congregations for Racial Justice. Um, it's gonna be a mix of stuff. In fact, we're still fleshing stuff out right now, but. But the big idea is to gather congregations in our region. So this is a central PA um, okay. program, really uh, focused on the Harrisburg um, area. And we have a long history of racial division as most places do, but in, in our case, it's this river that has divided. Um, and there's all kinds of like history that has shaped that space today that can get, it's lost, it's forgotten, right? Um, maybe intentionally so. Um, but there's a history of redlining in Harrisburg, limiting where Black people could live. There's a history of restricted deeds and covenants, right, in the West Shore, which is mostly white. Um, there's history of hostility, KKK and other white, you know, uh, hate groups out on the West Shore further out. 
Um, there are the highway that ran straight through a poor black and brown neighborhood that devastated and, you know, all this history that in some ways it happened all over the nation, but, but nobody understands the history, remembers history, talks about it and how it has organized and shaped our society. So that's one thing is for us to do some work around race and place. That's really important for us to understand our, our space, our place, um, how it became the way that it is today. And what would it mean for the churches to be faithful in the midst of it, right? Although white flight churches usually helped facilitate white flight by moving along. When white folks start moving, these white churches move too, right? To help facilitate white flight. Um, so there's these histories that need to be talked about and more deeper in particular stuff as it relates to our region. Um, so some of it is race and place stuff. Some of it connecting folks with local leaders. Some of it's doing thinking um, with um, biblical, you know, readings and thinking about how that shapes how we think about race, um, theology, how that relates to race. We're going to do civil rights bus tours, experiential learnings, all kinds. Of, it's just a wide range of stuff. Um, so this is not like just a in the classroom seminar type yeah. stuff. It's going to be wide ranging. We'll have 12 congregations that we'll select um, once after the application process is over. Um, and we'll have cohorts from each congregation that will participate in this ongoing process. And um, yeah, so we're really excited. We want to make a difference. And hopefully the goal is that at the end of it, that they would do some work with their congregations to uh, we'll both reflect on their traditions that they come from, because it'll be ecum ec ecumenically diverse, um, to explore their own mission and practices um, and values of their own local congregations, to refresh them, to do some programming, to think about ways that they can move forward um, and partner for justice in our region as well. And so, um, yeah, so we're excited about the kind of possibility of churches telling a more faithful story about our place and their own congregations and how they can live faithfully moving forward. I'm looking for the documentation on that so it can be, uh we can learn from it in different regions. I'm sorry, go ahead, Cody. I was gonna say, uh, actually we have a commenter on the live stream who his comment fits in exactly with the work you're doing because in his situation, I, I'm not, I can't remember if he's a pastor or what, if he's a leader there, but uh, he mentions that in their context, they're having a uh, issue running into, they wanna build trust and create environments where in their situation, Latinx leaders feel safe enough to step forward. Um, but they're having a hard time communicating and letting that like, hey, here, like shape this. It's, it's your space now, you know, kind of a way to uh, um, take ownership, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it's good. I, and I told him, I don't know, maybe he could even do a, uh, like a, almost like a ceremony or a symbolic moment that can be pointed to as like, that's the moment where power was relinquished or let go so that another person could pick it up. But I don't know if that would be helpful or not. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, so that's Andy Wade. Do you know Andy? Drew? Yeah, through Andy? Faith, just through, oh, oh, oh okay. <laughs> I don't okay. think so. Okay, yeah, a Andy had been a, a missionary, Mennonite missionary in China, a church planter in Washington, and now he's a community development, community activist working around issues of um, uh, immigra immig immigration and, and uh, houseless uh, folks in Oregon, so. Okay, yeah, that's good. And uh, well, yeah, I was also working with Christine Sign, Christine and Tom Sign, just a really interesting fellow. I'm glad he's on here, so. 
Yeah. So he actually has a question for you, but I'm going to tag you in the comments here so that maybe after or later when you get a chance, maybe you can interact with him. But he basically wonders if you have any advice for him in that situation. Yeah. I, I want to be aware of the time we've gone. We've gone long, and I hope you don't mind. But Cody still has his five questions to to to. They're, you know. they're not too long. Well, but yeah, they're they're intense. So, <laughs> I, actually, before we do that, I did want to. Um, one thing that really jumped out to me off of the page it was your like re, re, uh, repeated use of the term mangled Christianity. Yeah, you yeah. Uh, <laughs> what? Just in a nutshell, what does that mean? What are you talking about when you say mangled Christianity? It had to be intentional that you used it so many times. So yeah, I mean, you know, I you just you land on a particular term. You're just trying to describe and then think like, what's capturing, you know, and and wanting it to sit right. That's why I think I used it multiple times. Was wanting that language to sit. Um, but I guess just, I mean, when you think of something getting mangled, right? It's not that it's not Christianity per se exactly, but it's deeply distorted, right? Or or actually I, the other term that I love, which was uh, Willie Jennings term for, in the Christian imagination is disease, social imagination, right? Disease, <laughs> right? Um, but, but just to, trying to name that distortion to the way of Jesus, um, that it no longer looks, um, sometimes I talk about, um, um, what we have done in the public square is we have vandalized the name of Jesus, right? Um, to get at, you know, just this mangling. And so for me, thinking about the history of Christianity wholesale, like I often say like Anabaptists get half the story right, right? Um, you know, they, they, they love the Christendom and Constantinian Christianity and stuff. Nobody will hit that harder than Anabaptists will, right? Uh, but they stopped short and they, in a, at an interesting moment too, that they stopped short, right? As it relates to colonialism, right? Um, um, it's a pretty significant uh, mangling of, of Christian witness um, that happens there, but it can show their own um, gaps, right? In their own lives, sometimes white Anabaptists not seeing and picking up on that. Um, but nonetheless, I think all of that is examples where People have detoured from the way of Jesus, right? They've departed significantly from the life and teachings of Jesus and taking that seriously in Christian discipleship on the ground in everyday life. And so um, how do we, I mean, I love Howard Thurman, like in his Jesus and Disinherited, like is the problem, you know, like Christianity itself or what we've done to it, right? Is it, you know, it's one of the two, but something has gone terribly wrong for him, right? right. Um, and I, like him, believe it's not the problem isn't with the genius of, of Jesus's religion, right? Um, but with what we've done with it. Um, and I think that that, um, and maybe that's at the heart of, even though people are going to think about me, my invitation into activism and community organizing and nonviolence and all the stuff that I end with, um, at the heart of it, I mean, I hope people don't miss it. This is an invitation to Christian discipleship to Jesus. And that is really important for me, um, especially moving forward, that we've got to be much more faithful in what that means on the ground in our communities, in the public square. Um, so yeah, so that mango Christianity is just trying to name that which has gone off, right? right. Terribly wrong and amiss in our world today. All right, here they are. The hot seat questions. All right. Here we go. Are you ready? These are these are the five questions we ask every guest. So, yeah. Okay, Drew, what are you drinking? 
What am I drinking? So, yeah. Like what in is your general or what is, what is your go-to drink? What is okay, like, okay, this is drink. my drink or what are you drinking right now? What's your like, what's your jam as far as a drink? Yeah. Right. So, so number one, I, I should say I had um, some stomach issues. So I actually stopped drinking beer. Right. I have my friend. I have a friend who lives like a block down and he's like the, like, the connoisseur of like fancy beers, which I didn't grow up with all the fancy stuff. But I it started enjoying it, then like had to cut it all out. So I don't drink beer too much. Every now and then I'll cheat a little bit, but um, but trying to protect my stomach, I don't mess with that too much. So I often actually just end up drinking like wine, right? Oh, okay. um, I'm not a fancy, I don't really have any fancy drinks or anything, I don't know. <laughs> so I don't have any, but um, I and I like white wines and red wines, but I'm not a, wine kind of sewer you know i'm i'm a <laughs> pinot noir kind of you know simple guy I don't know. <laughs> all right all right next what are you uh reading so it can be a uh, an article or an essay that you are particularly struck by or a book you're going through right now or yeah i just finished um willie jennings um what is it after whiteness um it's a book it's really focusing on um theological education and and it's just brilliant i mean jennings i just love everything from him i can just eat it all up it's something though that i feel like it's the kind of book even though it's written for theological educators anybody could read it and get a lot out of it it's that kind of text you know um but it's just i mean he writes i mean the poetry the little stories and vignettes the weaving the analysis the uh, it's just powerful. I mean, nobody does it like Jennings. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm, and so I'm actually excited. Our whole department is actually going to be reading that together um, at Messiah. And so I'm excited about our conversations. That's, that's the last book that I finished. Yeah. Very cool. Good. All right. What are you listening to? So it can be an album that just released that you're like, everyone needs to hear this or an old album, or it could be a podcast that you highly recommend, anything like that. Yeah, listening. Um, Music-wise, one of the things I've been listening to more recently is um, there's there's some folks, and some of them are friends of mine, who um, who created a Pandora station called Praise and Protest Radio, <laughs> and um, and it's a mix of like there's I don't know if you guys are familiar like Common Hymnal if you're familiar yeah. with them oh, yeah. yeah so. Yeah. So common hymnal stuff and like gospel and soul and hip hop and like, you know, some movement songs, a little bit international stuff. It's just a mix. It's just an interesting, good mix of stuff that I can appreciate. And so that's one of the things I, I like um, throwing on is um, praise and protest radio. Yeah. Praise and protest radio. That awesome. sounds good. That does. What are you watching? So what are you um, streaming on Netflix or Hulu that you or or, or it could be a movie that maybe you want to recommend to people? Um, the last thing I've watched was, I believe, was um, One Night in Miami. Um, so that's uh, the special with, you know, kind of an imagination of what actually happens when Malcolm X and Sam Cooke and Jim Brown and um, who am I? And Muhammad Ali, right? Those four get together. It's actually a really interesting movie. Beautifully done, um, artistic, thoughtful, clearly written um, and designed for our moments, right? Um, to kind of, as they speak to one another, they're speaking 
to us, and particularly I think Black America in particular, um, as we think about, you know, how do we move forward in this space and time? What are the challenges that we've got to ask ourselves? And so, yeah, I, I really appreciated that quite a bit. Awesome. All right, last one. Craig and I show up on your doorstep and where are you going to take us to eat? Where am I gonna take you to eat? Is this assuming that everything's open? <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> Um, the pandemic. We wouldn't be traveling during the pandemic. <laughs> yeah. So where am I going to take you to eat? Maybe Queens Barbecue. That's a place. Um, there's a, it's a, it's a new, fairly new, like they, their timing was just so rough. They opened, it's a black owned um, barbecue spot called Queens. And right now, like you got to like, it's this complicated like ordering the day before and then go and pick it up and stuff. But um, um, so they're just, they're staying afloat basically because people are really, but it's excellent food. I mean, it's so good. Um, and for a while, like I, I won't lie, like I've complained, hopefully not too much of Black Harrisburg is listening to this because I might get, you know, a rock thrown through my window, but I've complained about um, the like soul food and stuff in Harrisburg and just the quality, I just have not been impressed, you know? But um, but Queens is there. They're doing their thing. It's really good. Um, I love it. And so um, that that could be one of the places I would take us is is head heading over to Queens. But we also have really good, um, lots of really good Mexican um, spots. You know, hole in the wall spots in Allison Hill and Harrisburg. And so um, that would be um, high on the list as well. Yeah. Awesome. That's good. good. That's it. Those are the five. <laughs> right. did, I, did I pass? What's you my score? <laughs> When, when, we, when we show up at your door after the pandemic, you'll see, right? We, we got to go to Queens, so we'll All see. Right. Mm, awesome. So okay. we'll we'll put uh, on our podcast page. We'll include uh, some of your social media links. Uh, I'm guessing you have a faculty page at uh, Ed Messiah. Yeah, it's not up to date. I don't even. Oh, I mean, okay. I need. I probably should update it at some point, but it's. All right. Uh, well, we'll we'll get some of your social it. media contacts up there, so yeah. people can follow you. Uh, links to the books and things like that. So. Oh, yeah. uh, and definitely about the um, the international book study or whatever. What's the oh, next yeah. book it, you'll be doing? Oh yeah, so we're doing M. Sean Copeland. She's a Catholic womanist theologian. Her um, her book, uh, Knowing Christ Crucified. So that's starting February second in the okay. U.S. Oh. February third for Australia, Eastern Africa. Yeah. Oh, right on. Actually, yeah, so we're excited about that. We just finished Jesus and the Disinherited. Um, then previously before that, we did my first two books. So we're, we're just starting our fourth. Yeah. So it's, it's gaining, it's funny. I mean, um, we, I don't think we intended it to be like this, but like now people call like Jared and I, um, pastor, you know? <laughs> um, so, so it's, it's, it, we formed real community. We've actually met actual needs financially oh, yeah. like someone in our group wow. had some real health care issues and like over twenty thousand dollars were raised oh, wow. in an evening for them from our group um just all kinds of it's just been neat we've had communion spontaneously in our group awesome. unexpected That's we bust on each other and have fun it's just it's it's become a little family and a growing community and some really neat folks that um, I mean, Shane Claiborne shows up sometimes and folks, you know, and are comfortable not having the spotlight, but just being a participant, you know? And so we have some really cool folks uh, part of the group as well. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm going to lurk. I'm going to come lurk. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah. Very cool. All, All right. right. I guess we're good. Anything else you want to say, Cody? Huh? No, just <laughs> no uh, more the book. <laughs> well, I so I have to confess, I haven't read the first book, but this book, fantastic, excellent book. I highly recommend people. We're going to be probably using it as a uh, in our church as a, a book group study. So, you know, oh, excellent. discipleship. Excellent discipleship yeah yep. that's <laughs> a book study that's all you have to do is read a book oh it's just a book study you know just like it can i mean done. i think it can facilitate right so long as we imagine right what are we going to do in our actual lives together um and not just the book study as the end goal i think that that's right. the hard work there's actually my experience. some homework there's actually some homework at the end yeah of there's the actually some yeah. homework right right go do it go, yeah put so the blue go jeans do it on. Go do likewise, right? As Jesus would say, right? Um, and so I think that that's, that's the work that we got to do. Yeah. All right. Well, hopefully we can also have you out our way again. You were here last summer. We can maybe post pandemic, we can get you out here in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, yeah. Be, be great to have you out here again. Yeah. I am supposed to be, um, where exactly are you guys? Are you? I'm in the Boise area. Boise. Yeah, Boise. Right, 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 right. So I'm going to be... Oh, where is it? Uh, Fresno Pacific. They have their so, Anabaptist Center or whatever, something like that. So in September, that's so I don't get over that way too often. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's that's the next closest thing I think that I have on the books. But yeah, it would be cool to come back in that area sometime. I had a good time at Boise trip. It was I was joking with someone that you know I was thinking about it. And I was like. We were cutting it a little close there with all the uh, pandemic stuff, but it all well, worked out okay. <laughs> but the pictures I saw, you were all very far. Yeah, we from. were. We were masked. Yeah. We were careful. We were socially we were distanced, and we were outside. And so it was. Yep. It was very thoughtful. Done very well. Um, and so probably, actually, the only part that I actually felt uncomfortable with was actually on the plane, not actually when yep. I was on the ground at all, because yep. everyone was just so thoughtful about organizing the time and event. Cool. Yeah. Very well, thank cool. you for your time with us, and uh, we'll hopefully have another chance to uh, hear from you and read your work and promote what you're working on. So just really thanks. Thank you. Appreciate you spending time with us. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. All right. All right. Peace. Bye-bye. How do I end this? There we go. <laughs> end, end button. There you go. Yeah, I was going to end the button and it's like, wait, do I do that or do I let me end Facebook? Oh, there we go. I was looking for the stop live stream button. Gotcha. All right. We're off. Okay, cool. All right. What a fun guy. Yeah, that was good. That was awesome. That was right. high quality right there. That was another good Boom. one. Boom. Coming we up bring it with the lives, man. With uh, we got a we got another conversation coming up with a guy named Toby Miller. Sheer, Sheer. I always butcher his name. Um, Tobin, <laughs> Tobin, not Toby. Um, but we're gonna have a conversation, you know, continuing some of these issues about uh, racial, race, racism, racial injustice, some of these issues. So, kind of looking forward to um, moving that one forward a little bit. Cool. So. Sweet. Yeah, yeah. Have you had responses on your uh, your um, correspondence uh, email? Yeah, yeah, we have. Um, 
it looks like we may, we've got some folks who are interested in being correspondents, uh, trying to find out still whether, you know, what that means. <laughs> Can I do this? Can I do that? It's like, yeah, yeah, do whatever, do whatever you want. Do, do uh, you, it's your time. Five minutes. And, use it. And one, of our, one of our friends has a great story. So I want, I want her to do, you know, we need to, we need to talk. Uh, hopefully if Sarah's listening. So I asked. Well, you're Sarah, not live anymore. You're not live. No, anymore. we're not live. But we're still recording. So. Oh, gotcha. So, so <laughs> Sarah told us. So one of my favorite bands is Five Iron Frenzy. Yeah. And Five Iron Frenzy came out with a brand new album just a week ago, or a little over oh, a week ago. That's right. That's and good. That's it good. is so powerful, incredibly penetrating. Uh, man, it's it is. Um, it puts on the heat if you are part of uh, the dominance, you know, culture. Anyway, they're part of a church called Scum of the Earth Church in Denver. And I was like, hey, Sarah, do you know anybody over at Scum of the Earth? Uh, it'd be great to talk to, you know, folks from uh, Five Iron Frenzy. It'd be a fun interview. She said, well, no, I don't know anybody over there. But the only person I did know there, well, he was a KKK undercover plant at Scum of the Earth Church. It's like, whoa. Okay. Wait, wait, wait. That wait, sounds wait, like wait, a good wait. story. What does that mean? Was he part of the KKK and they're like, hey, go listen in on what's going I, on there? I, I, believe, I believe so. Yes. Oh, my word. So, yeah, it's like, why does a KKK want to disrupt? Well, I know why they'd want to disrupt that, that congregation. Wow. It's all about justice. And, right. So, um, anyway. But... That would be um, that would be a fun story, and uh, trying to encourage other people just to do stuff. Um, yes, I love it. Very cool. All Yay. right, that'll and be a good you, one. Had, how, how's your new podcast coming along with uh, you and Lisa? <laughs> uh, not very well. She's working fifteen-hour days here lately, okay. rolling out vaccines. So uh, that's true. She's busy doing that. That's important. Yes, but. On the next, actually, on the next day off, I think we're going to tackle, you know, because the whole deal is any topic, we can talk about it. Yeah. I think we'll do, we'll talk about the vaccine and, uh, and uh, you know, what uh, myth, myth checks and what's, what's really going on with the vaccine, like what happens and all that kind of good stuff. So well, yeah, and I'm kind of curious, do, does she have to log each person in who comes in so they know how to um, identify the computer chip that's, that's being injected? <laughs> yes, I, I didn't know where you go with that. She does have to, yes, they do yeah. have to keep track of uh, the people for purposes of like, hey, your next round of vaccines and that kind of thing you know the, the well i know that i know that but i'm wondering about the chipping you know like <laughs> i didn't know you're going to the chipping yeah i mean oh, the yeah. chipping could be handy i mean how many times you've been going someplace and go now what where did how did i get here i'm, I'm lost you know you maybe don't have a good signal so you can't get a gps going and it's, you know you just go to the local vet you know, veterinarian does a little chip scan and go oh hey we found you you know <laughs> yes yeah, indeed. Oh, of course. Yes. She yeah. registers all the, the chips and uh, and Bill Gates is in on it. So, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, okay. she at the end of the day, she has to upload to Bill Gates's da database. So, OK, so just yeah. in case anybody's wondering, this last five minutes is all lying. So <laughs> make it all up. <laughs> this is sarcasm. 
Sarcasm. All right. Well, we're, we're done. That was a good episode. Okay. All right. Have a good Love day. It. Good job. Thank you. You too. See you later. Hey, maybe I'll be up in your way someday. Hopefully get in my car. <laughs> yeah, right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Come get it. All right. <laughs> All right, buddy. See you. Talk to you later. And Bye-bye. I will be the one answering the question, where will I take Craig to dinner? Or what will I do for dinner? We'll see. <laughs> ah, I'll get, maybe, sure you my right. maybe you could bring some fish. Well, if you would go pick and up my car, you'd see that in the back of the truck are a lot of my fishing rods. So I'm kind of yeah. limited. Oh, so. you want me to go catch the fish? <laughs> you okay, got it. <laughs> All right. All right. See you later. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining Cody Stauffer and me, Craig Morton, for this podcast. We simply try to record and upload without much editing. What you get is live conversation with all its ignorance and insight, wisdom and foolishness, sometimes more of one than the other, and occasionally profound things will be said, but entirely by accident. Make sure to follow us on Facebook at the All That's Holy Blue Collar Podcast. We'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment. And look for upcoming Facebook Live podcasts where you can interact with our guests. Also, we can be found on Twitter as at All That's Holy. Our intro and outro music is by At The Speed Of Darkness. Support At The Speed Of Darkness on Bandcamp and buy his music there. As well as follow him on Instagram at At The Speed Of Darkness. 